Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. October 16th, 1968. An overcast Wednesday night in Mexico City. Inside an open air stadium, 80,000 spectators look on at the evening's track and field events. Track and field is a zoo. It's a circus. It's a nine-ring circus. There is so much going on at one time. That's Amy Bass, an author and professor. There are races being run. People are leaping. People are jumping. People are throwing things. People are running. So where the focus is at any one point of the spectators is never guaranteed. That's about to change. There's a podium in the middle of a vast field. And it's not the anthem that draws everyone's attention to it. What keeps all eyes locked on the podium is the image. An image that will become one of the most memorable in Olympic history. It is the second that the anthem starts playing, Tommy and John bow their heads and raise their fists. It's almost as if someone flicks on a switch. And they stay that way for the duration of the anthem. Atop the podium is a man standing upright with his head lowered, his right arm thrust into the sky. The man's name is Tommy Smith. Just behind him is another man with his head bowed, his left arm raised. That's John Carlos. Their faces are unwavering, though they are afraid. Unlike Smith, Carlos's left arm is bent slightly. He'll later say that he did so to shield his face from sniper fire. Every detail every element of the image will become significant and carry meaning. The black socks both men are wearing without shoes, the black scarf around Smith's neck, the beads behind Carlos's medal, the white buttons pinned to both their chests, the black gloves on their raised fists. The Olympics are two weeks of rituals, ceremonies, and press conferences. But Smith and Carlos have chosen this moment for this gesture of defiance. Thinking about how we automatically behave when a country's anthem is played, how we automatically behave when a country's flag is being raised, this creates the perfect moment for a silent gesture because you have this captive audience who knows what they're supposed to do when these things are happening. It's a moment of silence They take up that space. They sort of replace the American flag with a black love fist. Families in the U.S. watch this scene in living rooms and kitchens during dinner time. The image fixed on their black and white TVs. 
Worldwide, this image will reach an estimated 400 million. Most wondering the same thing. What does the image mean? And what will happen when the music ends? I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. Today's episode is the story of the salute at the 1968 Games in Mexico City. Tommy Smith and John Carlos have endured as symbols of dissent, but the meaning of their salute has evolved and its legacy is complicated. Their act paved the way for athlete protests, but also led to the most consequential act against Olympic protests, an Olympic order that is facing a moment of reckoning as a growing number of fearless athletes are boldly and courageously declaring that they're no longer willing to just stick to sports. There's a belief that Smith and Carlos raising their fists in Mexico City was the moment politics was ushered into the Olympics. That's not exactly true. The politics of the Games have always been front and center. Entrance into the Olympic Games is based on national identity. So these national entities carrying flags, you know, literally open an Olympic Games, that in itself is a political moment. That's Amy, whose book, Not Triumph, But Struggle, is about Black athletes at the 1968 Games. Anything is inherently political when it's based on national identity, national belonging. So the idea of the neutrality of sport, the apolitical nature of sport, is, is, is farcical. It's absurd. Athletes don't stop being who they are when they walk onto the court or the field or the track. They bring with them their beliefs and their passions. There are also examples of protest at the Olympics going back 60 years before Smith and Carlos. In 1906, an Irish long jumper, Peter O'Connor, was forced to compete as part of the British team. At the flag-raising ceremony, he scaled the Olympic flagpole, wielding the Irish flag. A protest doesn't even have to be a gesture, an action, or a statement. It can simply be the performance on the field of play. We look at someone like Jesse Owens in 1936. He didn't create a protest action. It was his performance that stood as a political moment in the middle of Aryan supremacy to have a black man win four gold medals in Hitler's games. That's a performative kind of statement in which the historical moment makes the politics of the performance. Then you might have something more overt, like Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968. Smith and Carlos's act was months in the making, born out of a chaotic, tumultuous moment in America. In the year leading up to Mexico City, there had been race riots in Detroit and Newark. The Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War had fueled anti-war sentiment and ignited demonstrations across the country. Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy had been killed. Smith and Carlos were runners at San Jose State University, where they were active members of an organization that sought to bring attention to the inequality Black Americans faced, the Olympic Project for Human Rights, or the OPHR. Leading up to the 1968 Olympics, the group advocated for a boycott of the Games. The OPHR demanded the inclusion of more Black officials in the U.S. Olympic Committee. 
the exclusion of South Africa and Rhodesia from the Olympics because of apartheid policies, and the removal of International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage, who had supported the awarding of the 1936 Games to Germany under Hitler. The Olympic Project for Human Rights threatened a boycott if their demands were not met. So it was a transformation for Black athletes from sort of the solitary figure, the solitary important politically significant figure, into a collective, this collective consciousness of understanding the power of sports and the spotlight that athletes had and, and how they might be able to use it to achieve racial equity in the United States and globally. But consider what's on the line for these young athletes. Think about what you're giving up if you don't go to an Olympic Games, right? Especially amateur athletes. They're not famous until they get there and they get that gold medal. The consequences are different when you are, you know, an Olympic hopeful, a college student, an ROTC kid, which is what Tommy Smith was. Tommy Smith was 24 years old at the time of the 1968 Summer Olympics. He grew up in Harlem and at San Jose State, he was a decorated runner. He held world records in the 200 and 220-meter race. His teammate, John Carlos, was a Texan, 23 years old when he competed in Mexico City. Smith and Carlos were not friends, but they shared the same beliefs. They were ardent advocates of the OPHR, two of the most prominent athletes at the center of the movement. As the Olympics approached, some of the OPHR's demands were met. South Africa and Rhodesia were banned. Black coaches were added to the Olympic team, and talk of boycott became talk of protest. Whether or not to protest would be left to each individual. In Mexico City, Jesse Owens met with black athletes. The man who became famous for standing up to Hitler strongly discouraged these Olympians from taking a stand. Owens told them that they would face harsh consequences if they demonstrated. Smith and Carlos remained determined to make a statement they just didn't know what form it would take. In interviews in later years, Smith and Carlos never publicly agreed on how they decided on the specifics of their protest. They only agreed that it would come after their race in the 200-meter final. That meant their plan would hinge on one key factor. The most interesting thing that Tommy Smith talks about is that he had to win the race. That if he couldn't get to the victory dais, he couldn't make the stance that he knew he went to Mexico City wanting to make. He didn't have to win the race because he had to have a gold medal in his life, although that's a lovely thing to have. He had to win the race because he had to be on top of the victory podium and the star-spangled banner had to be playing, which meant the medal had to be gold. He very well understood the elements that needed to be in place. Peter Norman did get a good start, I thought. Smith is doing well. His legs seem to be standing up okay. Look at Carlos going in the center of the field and Quest there does not be... Imagine the adrenaline of watching the broadcast at home. Carlos was in the lead with 80 meters to run. That's when Smith burst ahead. With 10 meters left, Smith raised his arms high and wide as he crossed the finish line. Smith pulled muscle and all. Couldn't have pulled it that badly. He beat John Carlos. His time was 19.83, a world record and one that would stand for 11 years. What happened next would be etched in history forever. Soon after their race, Smith and Carlos walked out with Norman for the medal ceremony in their tracksuits. Smith and Carlos found an unexpected ally in Norman. 
Norman was a white runner from Australia. He received a button that read Olympic Project Human Rights from a member of Team USA before walking out. Norman didn't raise his fist, but he stood at the podium with the OPHR pin on his left side. Smith and Carlos stepped onto the podium with every detail of their appearance carefully considered. They would later explain what each element signified. The black socks with no shoes signified poverty at home. The beads around Carlos's neck represented the history of lynching in America. Smith's black scarf stood for black pride. Smith's wife had brought a pair of black leather gloves to the stadium that day. Smith wore the right glove and Carlos the left. Smith and Carlos picked the right Olympics to reach people in their homes. For its Mexico City broadcast, ABC had decided to expand its Olympic coverage. It's estimated about 400 million people see the protest in some way or hear about the protest in some way globally. What viewers can't see is the fear. Carlos feared that the gesture would attract sniper fire. Smith said he was afraid the whole time and could only get through the moment by focusing on listening to the anthem. When the music stopped, Smith and Carlos stepped down and began to walk off the field. They raised their arms one more time to the sound of booze. ABC reporter Howard Cassell sat down with Tommy Smith the following day. Cassell asked him, do you think you represented all black athletes? Smith famously replied, I represented black America. I'm very proud to be a black man. Smith and Carlos's gesture made news around the world, but it wasn't front page news until Smith and Carlos were suspended by the USOC two days later. That was after the IOC had threatened to suspend the entire U.S. team if the USOC didn't expel Smith and Carlos. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. That's the BBC reporting on the news of Smith and Carlos's suspension, which shows the importance of their gesture. The headline on the front page of the New York Times read, two black power advocates ousted from the Olympics. That same night, three Americans swept the 400 meter race. All three men wore black berets on the victory podium. But before the anthem began, they removed their hats. A long jumper, Ralph Boston, took his silver medal in bare feet. There were no other silent protests, no others who were suspended and sent home. Smith and Carlos returned to the U.S., where the loudest reactions were negative. One prominent sports writer wrote, Smith and Carlos looked like a couple of black-skinned stormtroopers, holding aloft their black-gloved hands during the playing of the national anthem. There are a lot of people who blame Smith and Carlos for introducing politics into the arena of sports. Fast forward to the 1972 Summer Games, which would become a horrendous tragedy after the killing of 11 members of the Israeli team by the militant Palestinian group Black September. ABC does a documentary film to get people excited for Montreal in 76 after Munich, because the Munich massacre is, is such a you know, just a spot of horror on Olympic history. How do we get people excited about the Olympic Games again? And so they create this triumphant tragedy documentary 
And the only two parts of the tragedy documentary, after all of the triumphant things that ABC puts out there, are the Munich Massacre and Tommy and John in Mexico City. And the way they're, they're sort of situated with each other, you, the viewer, are led to believe that Tommy and John are the reason that Munich happened. I believe Howard Cosell actually says introduced politics into the Olympic Games. There's almost this sense that they ruined something. The reaction was extreme, not just from the media. The IOC clamped down. Much less well-known than Tommy Smith and John Carlos are Vince Matthews and Wayne Collett, two young Black American runners who had been outspoken on racial issues leading up to the 72 Munich Games. Collett and Matthews won silver and gold in the 400 meter. And when they reached the podium, they talked through the whole medal ceremony. Afterward, Matthews spun the medal around his finger. Collett then raised his right fist while looking up toward U.S. athletes in the stands. The IOC banned Matthews and Collett from the Games for life. Three years later, the IOC went a step further. They added an amendment to the Olympic Charter the document that has expanded from 13 pages to 108 pages and has existed since 1908. The charter lays out a set of rules and guidelines for governing the Olympics. The new amendment, added in 1975, read, quote, Every kind of demonstration or propaganda, whether political, religious, or racial, in the Olympic areas, is forbidden. The amendment would be referred to by a simple name, Rule 50, a rule that still exists today. Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Can you define what Rule 50 is? Rule 50 is a rule that the IOC has put in place to tell athletes that the Olympic Games is non-political. That's Rob Keeler, the Director General of Global Athlete, a leading advocacy group for athletes around the world. So basically, you're not permitted to say anything, to use 
media during the Olympic Games, the two-year period, to stand up for any political issues, whether that's uh, standing up for gay rights, whether that's standing up for Black Lives Matter, it doesn't matter. Any any issue that you wanted to stand up for, they consider political. If you did so, you have your medal removed and you'd be kicked out of the Olympic Games. The rule is just 17 words, a single sentence, but it immediately achieved many goals. From keeping Olympic venues free from advertising to defining rules for identifying features on uniforms and equipment. The rule applies to officials, spectators, coaches, and of course, the athletes. The amendment to the Olympic Charter was made in 1975, seven years after the 1968 Olympic Games. But if there were no Carlos, Smith, and OPHR, there might not be a Rule 50. The rule comes into effect absolutely because of what happens with the OPHR. And I I think really what Tommy and John do is they put the Olympic ideals to the test. If you think about it, it's within the Olympic ideals to be fighting for racial justice and for these kinds of global demands that they made. But the Olympic movement didn't have space for that. Thinking about where Rule 50 comes from and The fact that religious and racial demonstration is specifically mentioned in Rule 50 as forbidden. Think about what we're saying. Racial demonstration is forbidden in an Olympic venue. Like, what a terrible thing to say. That fighting for racial justice is forbidden from this space. Because it's what? It's divisive? Rule 50 did what it set out to do. It put fear into the heart of Olympic athletes standing up for what they believe in. States have still used the Olympics as a platform for politics, most notably President Carter announcing the boycott of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But in the years and decades that followed the enactment of Rule 50, the Olympics were largely free of athlete protests. Rule 50 was a powerful message to the athletes. Keep quiet. Stick to sports. If you stand up and and stand for things you believe in, you are kicked out of the games. And that sends one message to athletes. You are not allowed to to speak up on any issue. And that, to me and to us, has facilitated an environment where abuse happens in sport because you're taught you can't speak up. You should be quiet on all issues and just stick to your sport. It's about more than silencing athletes. It's about power, taking it away. This power imbalance is what it's all about. So they've gained power over athletes. The language of Rule 50 would be refined over time, but its purpose and power would be unchanged through the decades. But after four decades of athletes largely abiding by it, Rule 50 began to make headlines again after one courageous athlete decided to take a stand in the summer of 2019. So what was the moment that you decided to raise your fist? During the whole song... I was pissed off the whole time because I'm just like, man, this song don't speak for me. I feel like it was only right for me to raise my fist at the end where the biggest lies are sang about, you know, land of the free, home of the brave. That's when I rose my fist. (laughs) That's Gwen Berry. She's an Olympic hammer thrower who raised her fist on the gold medal podium at the Pan American Games in Lima, Peru. Gwen's path to activism had begun when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Gwen, who was raised nearby in East St. Louis, joined the protest that fall. 
Brown's death had a profound impact on her. So did two trailblazers from the 1960s. What's crazy is I went home. I definitely walked the streets, protested. And then that very same weekend, Dr. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, they had a talk at the school that was on the same block as um, the murder that happened. That was my first encounter with them. And I remember I was in the auditorium and I was listening to them talk. And I almost cried because it was my first time being, you know, face to face with somebody who, you know, protested themselves and like went through all of these crazy traumatic things that a lot of people don't even know about to change what just happened in Ferguson. And it was still happening. So, yeah, I feel like that was a call. Gwen hadn't planned to make the gesture at the 2019 Pan American Games. But after she won gold at the event and was standing on the podium when the national anthem started playing, she felt compelled to do so. I didn't think nothing of it because I knew that I had done something right. I had done something profound and I had done something for the sake of not only my situation, but others who are like me, who are hindered, who are shamed, who are never wanted to be seen in a successful position. So I was just like, why not? So to me, it was like a no-brainer. I just did it. But then it was how the world took on to my moment that kind of just blew up my world. (laughs) Gwen's gesture caused a furor. As soon as I got off that podium... I got a call from uh, one of the companies that was one of my major, one of my biggest sponsors, the USA Track and Field Foundation. They called me immediately and was like, yeah, we don't rock with that. We don't support it. Don't you ever do it again. And I was immediately defunded. My funding went from $30,000, $35,000, and they tried to give me a $5,000 grant. Oh my God. I was top three in the world. So, yeah, it was crazy, like immediately. The CEO of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the USOPC, sent Gwen a letter saying, quote, I disagree with the moment and manner in which you chose to express your views. Similarly to the 68 salute, Gwen wasn't alone in receiving a public shaming for taking a stand. At the same Pan American Games, fencer Ray Bowden took a knee after helping the U.S. men's foil team take gold. And both Gwen and Race received a 12-month probation from the USOPC. Gwen's inclusion in the 2020 Olympics was in doubt. She was dropped by Nike. She even received death threats. Our team reached out to the USA Track and Field Foundation to see if they wanted to comment, but did not hear back by the time of this recording. It was a hard, like, five months. Because I dealt with it for, like, five or six months before George Floyd's death happened. And then did things change? Yeah, for sure. Tonight, cries of Black Lives Matter and hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot! Another night of chaos and unrest as anger over police killings spread to every corner of the country. The largest day of demonstrations for George Floyd yet. They shouldn't be here. They shouldn't have to be here. George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. And as these broadcasts remind us, Protests swept across the country during an already surreal period of global pandemic. And sporting events, including the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, were put on pause. With the world facing unprecedented change, the view on athlete protests quickly shifted dramatically. 
the US OPC decided that it would no longer sanction athletes who violated Rule 50, including Gwen and Rayson Bowden. Gwen was vindicated. I feel like it was necessary in 2019 because of everything that was going on in the world. And definitely in hindsight, 2020, what I did in 2019 was exceptionally necessary. So I feel like I hope my gesture in that moment on that podium just ignited something. There's no question something changed in the summer of 2020. More and more athletes were emboldened to take a stand. It's George Floyd. And the issues that were happening with Blacks in the United States and these social racial justice issues and, and the injustices that were happening, people were fed up. We've been oppressed long enough and it's time to stand up and, and change things. Athletes stood up and said, enough is enough. Across all professional sports leagues, athletes were speaking out. When the delayed Tokyo Olympics took place in the summer of 2021, Olympians had a platform. Leading into Tokyo, we knew athletes that were going to take a stand, that were going to use the podium, and there was concerns what the IOC would do. Because they have this way of creating rules that's so ambiguous that you never know what's going to happen to you. That rule, the IOC Rule 50, it would be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. The likelihood of the IOC sanctioning you could depend on any number of factors. It was one thing if you were a LeBron James playing basketball for Team USA. It was another if you were a lesser name. The stakes and the potential consequences could be wildly different depending on the athlete. Global Athlete and other organizations spoke up. We came up with statements to push the IOC back and to demand that they change that rule. The IOC came back with a report which concluded that the IOC should maintain Rule 50 to give a quote framework to protect the neutrality of sport and the Olympic Games but they put forth some recommendations that led to some change. They didn't get rid of it. They relaxed it. And that's where they decided that athletes could take a knee. They decided that athletes could use the press conferences, but they still could not use the podium or when they were ready to compete with other athletes, they couldn't use their freedom of expression. And to us, that wasn't enough. You can't be selective on when you can and cannot speak. The USOPC got it wrong when it shunned John Carlos and Tommy Smith five decades ago. This time, the USOPC joined Global Athlete and made it clear to its athletes, we have your back. You don't have to stick to sports. Leading into the games and said, any athlete that is suspended or sanctioned for standing up and using the podium, we will support you legally, rigorously to the end. And athletes did take the podium. Athletes did take a knee. And what did the IOC do? Nothing. So that threat and that collective saying, you're not alone anymore. We will support you. We will help you. That made a difference. At the Olympic trials during the summer of 2021, runner Noah Lyles wore a black glove and raised a fist at the starting line. And when the Tokyo Olympics finally began later that summer, Gwen entered Olympic Stadium during the opening ceremonies by raising her fist, not once, but twice. But Gwen wasn't alone in Tokyo. The U.S. women's soccer team took a knee before their match against Sweden, whose players did the same. The most notable protest in Tokyo occurred when Raven Saunders took the podium after winning silver in the shot put. Saunders is black, gay, and outspoken about her struggles with mental health. 
On the podium, she formed an X with her wrists as she held her arms above her head to represent, quote, the intersection of where all people who are oppressed meet. The U.S. OPC issued a statement that Saunders' gesture did not break any of their rules. The IOC, however, announced that they were investigating the incident for breaching Rule 50, but then announced that the probe had been suspended after learning of Raven's mother's death. Tokyo may have represented a breakthrough for Olympic protests, but it was just a start. I'm recording this episode in January 2022, before I go on maternity leave, and before the Winter Games in Beijing. Beijing will be an even bigger test, as activists and some human rights groups have voiced support of a boycott of the Games over the Chinese government's rights abuses. The Biden administration has already announced a diplomatic boycott, meaning that no U.S. government officials will attend the event. The world will be watching closely as athletes navigate a precarious position between global politics, activism, and competition. I spoke to Rob about what the future holds for Rule 50. What's global athletes' plan for continuing to break down the strength of Rule 50, specifically for Beijing and then into the future? We need to continue to advocate. We need to continue to use uh, human rights to promote and support the reasons why. We need to make governments accountable. Sport is a geopolitical force. And when athletes go to the Games, the National Olympic Committee sends them there, but the flag of the country is flown. The governments speak very clearly. Heads of state go to the Games. So it's a political arena that countries invest in. And we want to see more accountability from governments to demand that the IOC push back this rule. So if you're in the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, wherever where democracy exists and freedom of expression is embraced, those governments should not be complicit in allowing athletes to go to these games without having that right. We're dealing with human beings, not machines that are there to produce medals. And I think that's where... The Rule 50 falls short, and that's what needs to change. With more and more athletes refusing to simply stick to sports, calls for the abolishment of Rule 50 will increase. While Amy ultimately believes that Rule 50 should be abolished, she says we should consider the idea that an Olympian's act of defiance might only be an act of defiance because of the existence of Rule 50. If we don't have a Rule 50, then does protest matter? And I think that this is a really important thing to think about. For protests to matter, there have to be rules, right? You, you can't have a flagrant foul if there isn't a rule about flagrant fouls, right? It's not flagrant unless we've defined that in the rule. Intentional fouls are where we actually get to debate fair play. Like, are intentional fouls cheating? Are you gaming the system? What's the consequence? This is when we talk about, you know, what is ethical competition? But when we look at something like Rule 50... If it's allowed to wear black gloves and protest or take a knee or what have you, if it's allowed, does it still matter? Rob says abolishing Rule 50 will only empower athletes. I think if you took away Rule 50 and you had athletes that decided to stand up, it, it would actually enhance the ability to, to see a, a stronger and better stance on issues. I think it will also will empower, will enable and we'll send a message that you have a voice, you have the right to speak up, 
And when you do speak up, we're going to listen really hard because there's issues that need to be addressed in all parts of society, in all parts of sport. I think enabling it and allowing it can only help both athletes, sport, and hopefully contribute to allowing others to see those issues by putting them on center stage. You can guess what Gwen thinks of Rule 50. She believes it's well past time to remove it from the Olympic Charter. Rule 50 is it's outdated because not only just it's, it's a dumb rule, it's hypocritical. It's, it's really the hypocrisy that goes around Rule 50. It's like, how can you silence athletes in any field of play, but you gain so much from their stories? You gain so much from their voices. Like, they make money off of what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did. But they're not, they're saying, but you can't do it. But they make money off of it. They capitalize off of it. It's so outdated, but it's a form of, it's an, it's a form of control. Rule 50 or no Rule 50, there's a movement among athletes that's only growing in strength. You can move the needle without having this sacrificial lamb, if you will, without having an athlete that has to, you know, be first in the door and take the bullet. I think that that's a really cool component, a really powerful component of this conversation. Yeah, I think the ability to stand in front and to empower. So empowerment doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go and stand up on the issue or you need to scream from the top of your lungs to get issues changed. Empowerment is, we are listening to you. We are taking your lead, but we'll put our our front foot forward to stand up. It's a beautiful thing. There's no need for that first athlete through the door because there were two in 1968 who were willing to risk everything. One question lingered in the aftermath of Tommy Smith and John Carlos in Mexico City. Was it worth it? Both Smith and Carlos paid a hefty personal price. When they returned to the U.S., they were celebrated as heroes in some quarters, but they largely became outcasts, reduced and turned into caricatures of the angry black man. At Smith's mother's house, dead animals were left on the lawn and feces in the mailbox. Carlos's wife died by suicide in 1977. Carlos blamed himself, as well as the response to his actions in Mexico City. In some ways, Jesse Owens was proven right when he told the Black Americans in Mexico City that their lives would be impacted for the worse if they protested. After Mexico City, Carlos and Smith never competed in another Olympics. For years, neither of them could find a job. Both even lived in poverty for a time. Appreciation for what they did has come in time. In 2005, a 22-foot statue depicting the scene at Mexico City was erected at San Jose State. In 2016, both were invited to the White House with the members of the 2016 Olympic team. President Obama acknowledged how Smith and Carlos paved the way for the athletes protesting police brutality and racism in America. Their powerful silent protest uh, in the 1968 games was controversial, but it woke folks up and created greater opportunity uh, for those that followed. The Olympics are incredibly flawed. The IOC is incredibly flawed. Sports are incredibly flawed. But the Olympics are also 
they give us a visual of what it looks like when the world comes together. And it's okay for that to be messy and it's okay for that to be complicated. It doesn't mean that it's not just one of the most teachable, learnable things that we have in front of us. I think about things like the eventual banning of South Africa from the Olympic Games, really the first international body to do that, to take a stance against apartheid. I think about Afghanistan losing its Olympic status when the Taliban first took over the first time. I think about the Olympic Committee in 2012 demanding that every team has to field women if they're going to participate, which means that the three countries that still did not field women, had to bring women, had to figure it out in 2012. So these are the kinds of decisions that, that happen within sports that I, I think are really important. Smith and Carlos's stand endures as an image of dissent. 54 years later, it can represent hope and however slow the possibility of change. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Albert Chen. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched, champion diver Greg Luganis overcame a head injury at the 1988 Olympic Games, but faced a long emotional battle in the years that followed. I felt at that time, I felt like I was living on an island with barely a phone for communication to the outside world, because that's what secrets do to you. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening to Torched. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It actually really does help us find new listeners. We'll see you next week. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 